Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I hope you're enjoying this new season of the show where we connect college and university students with AEI scholars and end each episode with the same big life question, asking our scholars what they know now that they wish they knew when they were in college. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between AEI's Oriana Schuyler Mastro and Executive Council student Eli Glickman on China's threat to Taiwan and U.S. strategy in Asia. But before I turn it over to Eli for that really pertinent conversation, I want to let you know that we recently launched the application for AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program. AEI's Summer Honors Program takes place each June and offers students the opportunity to come to Washington, D.C., all expenses paid, for a week of seminar discussions with our nation's leading scholars. And if today's topic is of particular interest to you, and how could it not be, we have a Summer Honors Program course on China and competition in the Indo-Pacific taught by another AEI foreign policy scholar, Zach Cooper. In addition to diving into topics like the changing nature of warfare, promise of American pluralism, challenges posed by technology, and the morality of capitalism, students will get to meet and engage with others from across the country and ideological spectrum. To learn more and apply to AEI's Summer Honors Program, just click the link in our show notes. And to stay most up-to-date with all of our work at AEI, consider joining our year-round Executive Council program from your campus. You can follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss an episode of the Campus Exchange. Enjoy today's conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Eli, and I'm a sophomore at the University of California, Berkeley, studying political science and economics. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Oriana Schuyler Mastro, who is a non-resident senior fellow at AEI, where she focuses on Chinese military power and security policy in the Asia-Pacific and the rising power challenges to the international order. Dr. Mastro is also a center fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and serves concurrently in the United States Air Force Reserve as a strategic planner at the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. She holds a Ph.D. and an M.A. in politics from Princeton University and an A.B. in East Asian Studies from Stanford University. Dr. Mastro, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, um... In an article you co-authored with AEI's Derek Scissors in Foreign Affairs this past August, you argued that the notion that China is a peaking power is misguided. Can you just quickly explain why you believe that to be the case um, and how this should change policymakers' grand strategic calculus as it relates to China? Yeah, so, you know, it's it happens a lot in the field of China studies that People take arguments uh, and very smart arguments based on a lot of information about other historical cases and say that these should apply to China. And I would say that a lot of the surprise we have felt about China's rise, China's behavior, um, China's failure to respond to certain strategic initiatives that we thought they would respond to stem largely from this type of practice. The bottom line is it's extremely rare in international relations for a country to rise to great power status, right? Even rarer than, you know, wars in which we can't do sort of large scale analyses on. So the argument is, you know, China has some economic problems. And of course, what this means is that the economy is going to tank. And then uh, what will follow is a series of decisions by the party that they have to 
you know, they won't have the foreign policy power. They won't have the military power to pursue certain goals like Taiwan. So the argument that I made with Derek and and we co-authored it because my knowledge of of economics is not, you know, is minimal. And luckily I have colleagues like Derek or, you know, world renowned economists who can explain that side of things. But we were having a conversation. We both realized that for me on the military side, China's power is far from peaked. Um, And for him on the economic side, it was a similar situation. Primarily, not because any of the things that other people are pointing to, aging demographics, like are not a problem, but there's a lot of assumptions about how that's going to impact Chinese power and then uh, Chinese thinking. So on the military side, you know, China spends a very, very, very small percent of its military, a very small percent of its GDP on its military. And even from that, you know, very small defense spending, they've managed to create you know, one of the the strongest militaries this world has ever seen, at least one that creates a lot of headaches and problems and challenges for the U.S. military. So even if the Chinese economy were going to be completely stagnant over the next 25 years, they'll still have a larger economy than they've had the past 25 years. And it's not the case that because of a smaller economy, they've been unable to compete. So that's sort of the first point. It's not to say that I'm optimistic about economic growth, but even if you assume that they have economic problems, they're still going to be able to accomplish a lot on the foreign policy and, and military spheres. And the last thing I'll say, I think it's always very important, Chinese behavior is, just, is not determined by fact, it's determined by their perceptions of fact. And there's no indication in, in the party leadership or in internal discussion that anyone in China thinks that their future is anything but bright. So I, I guess the next question I have would would be about how that relates to Taiwan. So uh, the thesis of, of the Peking power folks is that as China declines, it will become more aggressive and more likely to lash out against Taiwan in the near term. Um, how does your argument uh, place Taiwan uh, in terms of the likelihood for Chinese aggression. So this is what's interesting is is my predictions about Taiwan are very similar to those of people who are making arguments about China's peaking power. The argument about peaking power is that their window of opportunity is closing. Uh, and so they're going to have more, you know, since they have the most power now than they're ever going to have, they might feel incentives to go for Taiwan. Now, I also think we are in a dangerous period, but for very different reasons, in particular, that the Chinese military for the first time will have the capabilities to take Taiwan by force. So on the surface, it looks like we're making a similar argument. But the reasons, the rationale behind why China would go for Taiwan are very important for U.S. policy and strategy. If you believe in the peaking power argument, it is extremely hard to deter Xi Jinping, right? If he has this now or never logic, like if I don't do this now, I'm losing Taiwan forever. You know, that's a that's a very high stakes situation. In my argument, it's just a let's do this as early as we can. And I think that timeline is, you know, going to be in a couple of years. But it also means that if the United States makes significant changes to a military force posture, coordination with allies and partners about potential economic sanctions against China, if they made the move, that Xi Jinping might say, oh, now's not a great time. My future is bright. Let me see what the future holds. And so in, in my world, uh, there's a lot much more optimism about deterring t- uh, Chinese aggression than in a peaking power world. Gotcha. And, and, and so I think one of the more optimistic things in, in your foreign affairs article was, was that you, you argued that um, because China is not on the verge of this sort of massive decline, um, that it's more likely that there there are 
um, things the U.S. can do to get Xi Jinping to back down um, in a potential conflict over Taiwan or to consider more limited war aims uh, that make uh, negotiated peace settlement more likely. Um, what conditions do you think uh, would make this sort of settlement the most likely? Um, and, and what can the U.S. do in the near term uh, to maximize its ability to induce uh, concessions from, from the CCP? So I think the good news is right now we're only really considering one pathway to war, and that is that China initiates a conflict. Historically, the United States has also been concerned about Taiwan initiating a conflict, either through you know declarations of independence or moves towards independence that we know wouldn't be unacceptable to China. I think now that's much less the case, primarily because the balance of power is so against Taiwan and in China's favor, it's kind of like suicide for them to, to go at it alone. Um, and that might be the case if Taiwan is the one to, to start this war. So the main thing that we're worried about, you know, is that China initiates a conflict because they think, you know, now's the time to unify with Taiwan. Now, I, I just want to be very clear. Like, I think Chinese use of military tools of coercion is a given, and is going to increase over time, whether it's military exercises like we saw in August, blockades, limited blockades, you know, seven to 14 days, quarantines, things like that, for China to show that they're unhappy about something. I think that, you know, is going to be the state of play for some time. But what, we're, what I think the United States really wants to deter is the amphibious assault, you know, the, the attempt at a full on unification between, you know, mainland China and Taiwan through use of force. The the bottom line is if the United States can convince China of one of two things, they're not going to do this. The first is people always argue, oh, but the economic costs will be too high. The bottom line is right now the economic costs are not too high. Like even if you looked at – and Derek and I wrote a separate piece about you know what happened after Ukraine to Russia and basically arguing this was not enough to deter China – the United States, one, and its allies and partners are not are currently not prepared to put the type of economic sanctions on China that would be required to make those costs too high. But I think the logic is there. If it were the case, for example, that U.S. allies and partners committed to ceasing all trade and seizing all Chinese assets like in their countries in the event of a Chinese attack on Taiwan, that cost would be way too high for Xi Jinping. Unfortunately, China is the number one trading partner of like the vast majority of our allies and partners. And so most of them are far from making that level of commitment. Maybe they'll have more token economic sanctions, again, just to show they're unhappy, but not of the level that would be necessary to really inflict pain. So if the Chinese economy was really going to be threatened, you know, rejuvenation over, that cost is too high to initiate. Or if the Chinese military can't do it. So this is where changes in U.S. military posture come. If the United States you know, they're basically only going to initiate a conflict if they feel like they can win it quickly. Once the war becomes more protracted, it gives the United States more time to flow forces into the region, to negotiate more access agreements, you know, then it becomes harder and harder for China. So if they feel like they can't take Taiwan quickly, that will also deter them from doing it. But right now, the United States has a hard time getting firepower into the Taiwan Strait rapidly. So there's certain, you know, whether it is the development of UAVs that can get there within four hours or intermediate range ballistic missiles that can get there almost immediately at the sign of a first attack, all of those things to bring firepower to the Taiwan Strait to sink Chinese ships, uh, I think would impose a lot of caution on Xi Jinping as well. So then um, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious about the differentiation between short-term uh, deterrent pre um you know, preparations and longer term deterrent preparations. Um, because I, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's clear that, that, um, 
at least from the perspective of the Biden administration, uh, whose national security strategy labeled China as a pacing challenge, um, that China is likely to be a long-term competitor for the U.S. Um, so how should the Department of Defense balance sort of short-term uh, maybe uh, deterrence by denial strategies with longer term competitive strategies? Yeah, this is the big question because there are trade-offs between immediate readiness and long-term readiness. Now, the way that I like to think about it, because we really can't choose one or the other, right? You're, you're kind of, it's like, oh, I'm going to be ready for conflict the next three years, but then I'm kind of in trouble forever after that. Or you create a window in which China knows like, okay, the United States is basically incapable of responding for the next seven years, but then after that, they're capable. I mean, both of those create really perverse strategic incentives in a world we don't want to be a part of. I like to think about more as like satisficing and maximizing. In the near term, we need a good enough deterrent. It's more of like a satisfying, just have, you know, barely enough to convince China, maybe not today, while we focus the vast majority of our resources on long-term competition. But we can't make trade-offs. That, you know, it, what it means is we're not going to be as competitive in the long term as we would if we could put all of our eggs in that basket. Um, we're not going to be as strong in the short term if China makes a move today, but we really are not in a position to make a decision one way or the other. And do you think that that sort of concept uh, is equally true for regional allies um, like in the Quad or uh, in AUKUS? Um, or should the U.S. be sort of leaning on, on, on regional powers to be balancing against China in a different way that allows us more latitude for for the kind of long-term um, competitive solvency that you mentioned. So I think our allies and partners, like based on certain decisions they made, they could solve the short ter- the short-term problem for us, even without like any changes. This is like in US strategy and readiness. I mean, the first thing is a lot of our problems with access so close in the region, you know, a country like Japan we go, you know, from the United States from operating from one airbase in a Taiwan contingency to dozens and dozens of airbases in a Taiwan contingency. And Japan, you know, has one of the most sophisticated navies in the world, definitely in the in, in the region. So, like, if the Japanese tomorrow were going to commit to fight with the United States to defend Taiwan, that would be enough to deter Beijing. Again, if our allies and partners all committed to significant economic sanctions in the event of a use of force, that would be enough to deter Beijing. And timeline-wise, that's just like a statement, right? Like they could do that tomorrow if they felt like it. The problem is that our allies and partners are very far from agreeing to this. Um, And that's another assumption a lot of people make. They're like, oh, and then of course everyone is with the United States on this. But there's a lot, and rightfully so, there's a lot of disincentives that they face, um, to support U.S. actions. So what I'd like to say is, in in an ideal world, what I would like to see is that the United States credibly communicate its capabilities to defend Taiwan to China, but I would like China to be uncertain of our commitment. And that's because the more uncertain they are of our commitment, the the more likely they are to give the U.S. military sanctuary in the initial stages of a conflict to allow us to actually put together force packages that we need to win. But if they're confident in our capabilities, that might be enough to deter them. On the other hand, I want our allies to be uncertain of our capabilities, but certain of our resolve. So the exact opposite. I want them to know that the U.S. commitment is 100% ironclad, rock solid. But I want to be them to be fearful that we can't do it alone. 
And so that we don't have the military capability to stand up to China and therefore we need them. Because right now, most countries are like, yeah, I mean, is it better in the future if the United States is the is the most influential power in this region? Sure. But if you can avoid the costs of conflict, competition, or war and still have what you want, you know, that's a better situation. So what we need is for countries in the region to understand without their support, that is not the future we're doing in. Right. And, and, and how do you think the U.S. can best um, sort of relay that message both to the Chinese and to its allies? Do you think, um, you know, that's, that is an argument for pursuing greater, greater regional multilateralism or sort of um, dyadic relationships one-on-one with allies where we sort of communicate, resolve, um, and, and pursue a sort of opposite dyadic relationship with China in the way you mentioned? Yeah, it's very hard because what we're, you know, we have multiple audiences and we're trying to communicate different messages to different audiences. I would say that historic, so we go, we, the pendulum swings back and forth. Historically, we primarily are focused on our allies and partners in our messaging. And as a China specialist, I'm always like, this messaging is causing all sorts of problems in Beijing in terms of how Beijing is seeing us. Um, and then we go the opposite route. Right now we're on this like let's deter China type of route. We have really aggressive language and Joe Biden, you know, President Biden is making statements about like Taiwan being an ally and we're going to defend Taiwan. And then our allies and partners are worried about our recklessness, you know, so it's it's extremely difficult to do both of those at the same time. I The way that I like to think about it is we have been, you know, speaking loudly and carrying a small stick, I'd rather we speak softly and carry a large stick. So less statements about everything, just say less about everything and commit yourself to implementing the policies that we would actually need for our allies to be reassured and for Beijing to be deterred. Okay. So then in terms of the Beijing to be deterred part of the equation, uh, you mentioned the carrying a big stick. Um, and, and China has constructed sort of an, an elaborate and expansive array of anti-access area denial capabilities meant to make U.S. incursions into the South China Sea difficult, if not impossible. Um, how does this affect existing U.S. naval operational concepts? Um, and, and what capabilities do you think Indo-PACOM needs to be uh, uh, or needs to adopt to be able to adapt to this challenge? So the bottom line is right now, and this goes to kind of the short term, long term question it's very hard technologically to be able to defend against Chinese cruise and ballistic missile attacks, right? So China, for example, has an anti-ship ballistic missile, um, you know, and we just don't have the capability to, to ensure with high reliability that, you know, they cannot hit our ships. This is sort of a technological question. And so I think about deterrence much more in the psychological realm then. Um, and w- I think it's going to be hard for the United States to be able to create defensive systems such that China cannot attack us, we have to convince China more that that the attack will not have the operational impact that they think it does. So, for example, like right now, it's really uh, attractive for them to attack, you know, the U.S. air base at Kadena. And we try to think about deterrence by being like, oh, we'll put, you know, air defense systems in there so the missiles don't get through or we'll warn them that like we'll be really angry and the Japanese will be really angry. But it's just so attractive that either, you know, threatening costs, all that stuff is very hard. But instead what we have to show the Chinese is even after that attack, it doesn't take out our ability to operate. So right now it's just so attractive to them because they're like, we take out your one air base, then you can't fly anymore. And then we win the war, you know? So 
So from them, it's like there's such a high likelihood of success in the conflict if they attack certain aspects of, of the United States military or space assets, for example. So we have to sort of have much more redundancy and we have to practice much more of being able to continue operations under degraded conditions so that we can say to China, not that you won't be able to hit us, but once you hit us, it's not going to have a huge impact on our ability to fight you. Okay. Um, and, and and from sort of the economic um, side of things, so you mentioned um, that it, that uh, the level of cost the U.S. and its allies have imposed against Russia uh, for invading Ukraine would probably not be sufficient uh, to um, deter a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. How do you see uh, Chinese initiatives like the One Belt and One Road initiative as figuring into that equation? Are these sort of grand strategic uh, ways for China to hedge against a potential uh, form of, you know, Western economic punishment? Uh, or what, really, what do these reveal about China's sort of longer term grand strategy? Well, China, so there's sort of two components. China is absolutely trying to sanction proof itself. This has been the case for some time, not only economic sanctions and trying to create new markets outside of those of U.S. allies and partners, but by also having alternative sources for energy, right? Overland pipelines are a big part of the Belt and Road Initiative to countries in Central Asia as, as well as Russia. But it's also a part of a larger grand strategy of Beijing just trying to get as much support as it can. It's also a part of a larger grand strategy for Beijing to get as much as support as it can for being a global leader, Right, for having states vote with it in the United Nations, with having states support its development model over the United States. And that's a numbers game more than a quality of countries game. Thank you for that. And, and now for the final question, which we ask of all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? There's, I would, can I say two things? I would say, first of all, I look back and think about how how busy I thought I was in college and just think, oh my God, I had so much free time. And just and, and luckily for me, I did make the most of it. I never did summer internships. I always spent all my summers just like traveling other places and it all turned out fine. I still got my first job in DC once I was done. So I guess the first thing is, you know, I had some anxiety about it, but you know, ha- have a good time as, as long as you can and then trust your gut on things. I did, in the end, whether it was my decision to study China, when everyone was still studying Japan or to join the military in the middle of my PhD, you know, a lot of people had a lot of opinions about how that was going to impact my career prospects. And in the end, I'm happy I trusted my gut, but I guess I would tell my younger self that like, you know, everything is, is going to work out and just to be less stressed about it. I think during my whole PhD, I was like, am I going to get a job? Am I ever going to be able to write an article that anyone is ever going to publish? Um, so that's what I would say is, is have a good time and, and, and trust your gut to do the things that you think are important, even if they're different than what everyone else is doing. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course, given how little time I have these days, but happy to join you and have this discussion with uh, this program. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. 
The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.